Bible readings from Nehemiah chapter 4 verses 1 to 11 and this is on page 507 in the Pew Bibles. So verse 1. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he came angry and greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heap of rubble, burnt as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Second reading is from Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest parts of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plan and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armour. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, 
Join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, Have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. This is God's word. Thanks. Well, friends, let's uh, come to God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to understand it, apply it into our hearts and lives, that you would strengthen us, Lord, in your word. And I pray that you give me the strength to be faithful, to share in your word with your precious people. I ask that you forgive me my sins. And we ask your blessing upon our time together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, once again, it's a great joy, isn't it, to worship our awesome and wonderful God. We, we know this God, that he is indeed our God. And we can come to him at any time because he is our God. And this comes through in this passage here in Nehemiah chapter 4. Today I want to look at this topic, overcoming opposition. Now, I'm sure if you've been involved in uh, some kind of sporting field or if you've been doing uh, uh, lawn bowls or or in organizations, whatever it might be, if you're playing a competition match, you will come up with some strategy as to how you're going to deal with your opponent. For example, the Australian cricket team is already strategizing as to how they're going to attack the English team, right? Any English supporters here, don't raise your hand. Oh, I see Andrew. Andrew, you can't do it, all right? Already the battle has begun. Did you know that the English team has got a a list of 80 different foods that they want for their team? Did you read that article? That's their menu, 80, 85 different menus, Already, the battle's going on. And so, some people are saying, well, the English team need those 80 menus so that they can actually play well. And we don't actually need that kind of food. Well, you would always want to size up your opposition. When I used to play cricket, I always used to study the opposition, especially their bowling lineup, so that when I went into bat, I always knew what kind of ball this guy is going to bowl. And I was strategizing myself. Sometimes I failed miserably. Other times I played quite all right. Okay? So we strategize. We look at our opponents and we wonder, well, what's the strategy that we are going to adopt here so that we can actually get on top of our game? Well, Nehemiah had to do that. Overcoming opposition. In life, we will face trials. In life, we will face opposition. Perhaps in the classroom in the workplace, in our neighborhood, wherever it might be, as Christians, you might face opposition for being a believer in Christ. We know that our brothers and sisters in Christ in many parts of the world are facing opposition for following Christ. So today we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 4. 
verses 1 through to 15. And I want you to keep your Bibles open to Nehemiah chapter 4 as we together work our way through this, uh, this, uh, this passage this morning. So let me make some uh, comments by way of introduction. You see, Jerusalem was a very important city because it was connected to God's name and his reputation on the earth. It is where God's people lived and worshipped the Lord. They were to be a city that shone forth to the other cities of the world as a witness to God. When the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem, they destroyed the walls that encircled the city. King Nebuchadnezzar tore down the walls and burned the gates. This made God's people vulnerable and left them in arms way. Life couldn't be secured within that city. And now for almost 200 years, the walls are still down, the gates are burnt, the city has not been rebuilt. And news of this reached Nehemiah and we saw his response when we looked at Nehemiah chapter 1. Where Nehemiah heard of the situation in Jerusalem, he was emotionally distraught, he was broken within himself, he was devastated, he wept, he moaned, he fasted and he prayed. For the situation in the land. And the question is, why was he so concerned about the walls and gates of Jerusalem? After all, he was having a cushy job. What was his job? He was the cupbearer. He was the cupbearer to the king. And this cupbearer did not just take on this beautiful or lovely wine to the king. He had a, a very important position. He was in charge of the king's security. He was in charge of the wine supply for the king. So he had a very responsible position. He used to taste the wine to see whether the wine was actually poisoned. And just in case it was, then, wow, that would have been the end of Nehemiah. That's a tough job, isn't it? You can taste all the best wines, but if it was poisoned, that's it, you're gone. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do that job, would you? Well, anyway, that was Nehemiah's work. And he was living in exile. And news of the situation in Jerusalem reached him. And he moaned, he fasted, he prayed, he cried to God. And so the question is, why was he so concerned about the walls and gates of Jerusalem? Why does he want to rebuild the city walls? After all, they are just walls and gates. What was his purpose? I believe, friends, that his entire purpose is not just to rebuild the walls, but the people in the city as well, which we will see in chapters 8 through to 13. And so the building project is designed to rebuild the people, to bring them back to worship, to bring them back to praise God, to bring them back to the witness of God. It is a means to an end, and it is not an end to itself. And I'd like us to remember this as we go through the book of Nehemiah. But most importantly, the book of Nehemiah also points us to Christ. When you see Nehemiah leaving his position of privilege to come and to minister to the people, to remove their shame and distress, we see a picture of Christ who left his position of exaltation and humbled himself to remove our shame and our distress. I want us to keep that in the back of our hearts, in the back of our minds as we work through this book of Nehemiah. So in a sense, we are tracking Christ through the book of Nehemiah. Also what we see here is that the city of God is not a physical location anymore. The city of God, the church of God, is found among all the nations and all the cities. But sadly, 
with its walls down and its gates burned, especially in the Western world. And so this book of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the walls of the church. In this country, it may be God has called us to be part of the building process, to be a powerful witness for Australia, to see Melbourne reached for Christ, to see this, this great city of Melbourne, which is, by the way, as we know, the most, the most livable city in the world. You must agree with that. One of the most fantastic cities in the world for us. And God has placed us here in Surrey Hills. We trust to reach Surrey Hills and beyond for Christ. And so last Sunday, we worked our way through Nehemiah chapter 3 uh, with all those names. Remember those names? All those people who were involved in team work, doing their bit in the rebuilding project. And so Nehemiah chapter 3 is a marvelous narrative of how the wall gets built. It's a summation of who stepped up and what and where they worked and what they did. So remember in Nehemiah chapter 3, we had the building of the wall, the 52-day summation of what happened. We heard who built where, how it was arranged, how they prepared, and how they sacrificed. And so now when we come to Nehemiah chapter 4 in our fourth study, we get to see another side of the work that's going on behind the scenes. We get to read in Nehemiah chapter 4, if you look at your Bibles, an opponent who is scheming against God's people and God's work. You see, when God's work begins to grow, then, friends, we must also somehow see that opposition will also start to take place. You see, the stirrings of this opposition began in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 10. We saw that Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And so in chapter 2 and verse 19, we have this recorded for us in, in, in chapter 2. But when, when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the, the Arab heard about it, they mocked, they ridiculed us. What is this you're trying to do? They asked, are you rebelling against the king? Now, why are they starting this opposition? Because they did not want the Jews to succeed. It was for their advantage that Jerusalem had its walls down and gates burnt. But Nehemiah wouldn't be stopped. And how did Nehemiah respond to these initial stirrings of opposition? He said this, Nehemiah 2.20, I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us the God of heaven will give us success. Alright? And so Nehemiah is saying that your opposition will not stop this work. It will not stop us because your hand is not sufficient and it is incapable of stopping the God of heaven. He is the one who is going to give us success. And so when we come to chapter 4, we see that those initial stirrings of opposition is now intensifying. In fact, chapters 4 to 6, uh, some commentators put the whole thing in one bracket and they call it a spiritual warfare. That's what's going on. 
And I see in chapter 4, 1 to 3, and if you have your Bibles, in chapter 4, 7 and 8, and we'll come to that in a moment, right? we see this opposition. We see four strategies of attack that are brought against God's people who are on mission, who are on ministry, and who are on message. Let me explain that. We want to be a church who is on mission, right? Our mission is to worship God, to praise His name, to make Him known to this world. We want to be on ministry as well, serving God, serving one another, serving His people. And we want to be on message. That's a great thing, three M's. We want to be on mission, ministry, message. Yesterday, I enjoyed the opportunity I had to be at Deacon Uni at the, at the CU uh, last afternoon. I was there for uh, part of the program. I couldn't stay for the last half an hour, but uh, the time that I was there, uh, and some of us were there, uh, we were, I, I was just so encouraged to see and to hear of testimonies of what God has done through the ministry of CU on, on the campus and how that ministry has actually grown. Uh, five years ago, it was so small, and today... And I came home so encouraged to see that the ministry staff grow. Uh, there's a great team there now, uh, led by Pete. And to hear of stories of people and, and international students, international students coming to know Jesus Christ through campus ministry. Uh, talk to Pete, talk to Erica. They'll be able to share with you the exciting things that God is doing just down the road in Burwood. See, God is interested in, in missions. He's interested in ministry. And, and, and the focus of the campus ministry could be this as well. It's, it's on mission, it's on ministry, it's on message. And so, as that work grows, there will be challenges. But we know that God stands behind our ministries to serve Him. And so here we see there were four strategies that were adopted by these guys. Alright? You got your Bibles? Have a look at it. The first one was the warfare. The second one was one of threats. Third one was the discouragement. And the fourth one was the fear. You see, the first one is the warfare. There is a, a kind of psychological warfare going on here. It is aimed at lowering the morale of the Jews. It is the battle of the mind. They do this by ridicule and mockery. Chapter 4, 1 to 3. I'm not going to read all of that. You can see that there. Sambala third that we were building. What did they do? They didn't say, Hooray! The Jews are building the walls. Wow! Isn't that fantastic? Good on you guys. Keep going. No. What did they do instead? You see, they started jeering. They ridiculed the Jews and mocked at them in order to stop them from rebuilding the walls. Sanballat, together with his brothers and the army of Samaria, ridiculed the workers and he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, six things, I think, which I've taken from this text. There were six psychological taunts that I want to share with you this morning. Five from Sanballat and one from Tobiah. The first one was this. What are these feeble Jews doing? What the, the word translated there is withered. It's like a flower that's withered away. Oh, what are these withered Jews doing? Feeble Jews. Will they restore the second one? Will they restore it for themselves? How could they reassemble those big 
massive stones with such a small number of people. They didn't have these massive cranes to do the job. They had to do it by themselves. The third one was, will they sacrifice? Now, while some people think that this is an offering of thanks to God when the wall is complete, there is one commentator who has an interesting take on this. And his view is that this probably means this. It means this. That is, are those fanatics going to pray the wall up? Are those fanatics going to pray the wall up? It is their only hope. And this taunt was an attack on their faith. It is therefore ridiculing their faith. The fourth one, will they finish up in a day? Will they finish up in a day? Fifth one, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And then Tobiah comes up with a classic. He says this, Yes, but they are building if a fox. I'm sure foxes. We don't want to see foxes, do we? Really? I mean, well, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Imagine that. Eh? Imagine that taunt. A fox going on these massive walls, huge stones, and he's saying, if the fox goes on that, the wall's going to fall. You see, together, they were ridiculing Nehemiah and his team of workers. In doing so, they were attempting to unsettle their minds and to demoralize the people. And this kind of psychological warfare goes on. Goliath against David. He looked at David over and saw he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. And he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Remember that? David and Goliath's story. This kind of psychological warfare goes on even today. The army uses it in confronting the enemy. It happens in the area of sports. Occasionally, before a big match, the coaches or some player from both teams may use this tactic to unsettle the mind of the opponent. In fact, Shakespeare called ridicule paper bullets of the brain. He called ridicule paper bullets of the brain. And one writer says this about ridicule. Some people who can stand bravery when they are shot at will collapse when they are laughed at. Have you ever been ridiculed? Have you ever been made fun of? It's a nice feeling? Of course not. You might be strong in other areas, but if people ridicule you, just that, that little comment, just that little cutting remark can bring you down, can't it? Because they're ridiculing you. You see, psychological warfare is effective because it strikes, I think, at the hidden insecurity within ourselves. It goes deep. You might be strong on the outside, but a, ridicule, a comment of ridicule goes deep in there. Well, what was Nehemiah's response to such ridicule, to such psychological warfare? What did he do? Every time Nehemiah has been faced with adversity, what has he done? It has been the priority of prayer. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt. You see, he prays. See, sometimes as Christians, you might be ridiculed in the workplace. 
You might get, you might be ridiculed at school. As a young person, you take a stance against something that's going on in the school and you might be ridiculed for that. In the workplace, as a Christian, is it easy to be a Christian in the workplace? Come on, those who are out there in the real world, it's not easy, is it? Right, because you don't want to join your friends, perhaps. Uh, you, you, you take a stance in your workplace and people know that you're a Christian and they might ridicule you for that. It's a challenge. The church gets ridiculed. Oh, you poor Christians, what are you all about? You're only a minority, perhaps. And you're still trying to go on with your work. You're still going to church on Sundays. Oh, you poor people. Don't you have something better to do? Of course not. We are here because of our God. You see, he prays for God's intervention. You see, he prays that God will dismay these people. Because God had given them a mission. And so this first tactic of ridicule comes. And Nehemiah goes to the Lord in prayer. The second one that we see here is the one of threats. In 7 and 8, when Sambalat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. A combined force to attack. Nehemiah must have been in real stress. Imagine being a leader. Imagine that. I was thinking when I was writing this talk, I'd love to meet Nehemiah. I'm sure we'll meet Nehemiah one day. I'd like to sit with Nehemiah and say, tell me, Nehemiah, how did you handle the stress? Man, this must have been hard. He signed up these people. They have volunteered to come and help. And now, wow, this opposition. And he must have been, man, he must have been really stressed out. He must have been taking those vitamin B tablets every day. No, our oh, good. Well, he would have trusted in the Lord and taken the vitamin Bs. All right, okay. You see what I'm saying, right? Wow. See the alertness of this. I better be very careful here. You see, you see, friends. You see, our God. You see, this God is the one who has sustained this man. He must have been stressed out. The people signed up to work, and now they are staring at death in their face. They are surrounded north, south, east, and west by enemies who do not want God to be worshipped. Terrible plight. So what is Nehemiah's response to the second tactic? Is this, but we prayed to our God and posted the guard day and night to meet this threat. He's a man of prayer. He calls for the strength of God and then he takes action. Prayer is always joined with action. We pray for someone who is sick. We've been praying, for example, for our brother Nalin, but we're also praying that God will give wisdom to the doctors to make the right decisions. We don't just pray and do nothing, don't we? This prayer goes together with action. And so Nehemiah strategizes. Prayer is joined with action, and we tend to think real prayer warriors don't act. We tend to think that way. No real prayer warriors act because once they put their utter dependence upon the Lord, then they can rise up with their actions. You see, passivity doesn't show our faith. 
It is an activity that is rooted in our utter dependence. It is 100% dependent upon the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, I was reading his, his sermon actually this past week uh, when I was preparing for this, uh, this talk. He is preached on chapter two, uh, chapter 4 and verse 9. He he's preached a sermon on the two guards praying and watching. Praying and watching. Uh, he says, we see two guards. First, prayer. We made our prayer unto our God. And second is God. It is watchfulness. Praying and being watchful. Watch and pray. You see, watch and pray. These are two things that we are, we are called upon to do. You see, and, and Spurgeon says this. He says, we made our prayers, he says, unto our God. Those two little words... I think Charles Spurgeon, if you read some of his sermons, I'm always fascinated with his sermons. I get so much out of it. He, he's got a real way of analyzing a passage and just take two words and preach from it. And Spurgeon, he said this, those two little words, our God, carry a vast weight of meaning. The door of prayer seems to turn on those two golden hinges. Our God. Nehemiah and the people knew God as our God. You see, do we know this God as our God? Collectively, is our God <laughs> two golden hinges? Nehemiah calls upon the Lord to be their protector and their strength. And then he takes action by setting the guard because he is our God. You excited about that? Our God, our God who has made the heavens and the earth. Our God who is in charge of everything in life and in death. Our God who has, who has come to this earth and I will talk about that in a moment. This is our God. You see, and then we have this third tactic that has been used, and that is discouragement. You see, in Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 10, Meanwhile, the people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out. They are running out of puff. There is so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. They say this is too much. It is actually impossible to do. The ten... We, we, we see this kind of discouragement, isn't it? Discouragement is a key weapon of Satan against God's people. Did you know that? He will discourage you. Nothing takes the wind out of your sails like discouragement. Example, any parent who has been to watch your child play sport, or your child is running that race, what do you say to him or her who is playing a match or running in the race? Do you stand on the sideline and say, oh, you can't do it, you can't do it. Did you say that? No, you say, come on, keep going, you can do it, you can do it. I was at a squash match yesterday watching my son play. I always enjoy my Saturday mornings, sports, the fathers get together, we guys get a nice coffee and we sit down there and we pretend that we know everything about the game. And a squash. He played the first match. 
So, all right, the second match, I saw this bigger guy there, and I thought, oh, Sean, you're going to be in trouble, man. I didn't say that to him, I said it to myself. And so the match started. Won the first match. And on the second one, the guy was coming full speed after Sean. I thought, oh, he's going to go down. And I just sat there and said, come on, Sean, keep going. And fathers are next to me. They oh, oh, oh. Said, What's going on here? Keep going, keep going, keep going. And anyway, we won the match. That's fine. <laughs> it's all because I cheered. You see, it's not, it's not just that. It's not. You see, the point is, you see, and, and funny things happen at matches, right? Because I had the opposing coach last week or week before or something. The opposing coach and those guys were strategizing against Sean's match. And I stood next to them as if I didn't know anything. And I listened to what they were saying. And they said, oh, he's not hitting the ball in the deep. Oh, okay. So next, when Sean came up to play, I said, come on, Sean, go to the deep. (laughs) The guy said, oh, okay. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? There's a strategy involved. So our parents just follow that example. No, don't. You see, we give there and we stand and we encourage. And so also for the Christians, God calls us to be encouragers. Because discouragement brings us down. It brings leaders down. They're like paper bullets. And if I feel discouraged all the time, it is by God's grace that I can come Sunday after Sunday and face you as God's people every Sunday. No matter what kind of week we've had, we still come here and share God's word with you because God gives us encouragement and he uses people to encourage us. For example, for John and myself, I might get emails from somebody that's saying, Oh, I'm praying for you this week. How is your sermon going? How is everything happening this week, Chris? How's your family? We are praying for you. What an encouragement that is. What an encouragement that is for us guys who are out there in and doing this kind of work. We all need that encouragement, don't we? We need encouragement in our lives. And you see, Nehemiah needed that encouragement. There was discouragement. The psalmist says this in Psalm 40, verses 1 and 2. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps What an encouragement is that? That God is able to lift us from the miry pit. Does he not do that? And he puts our feet on a rock and he says to us, he has set my feet, the psalmist says, on a rock, making my footsteps firm. And the last one here is the one of fear that we see, the other strategy versus 12 to 14. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, whenever you turn they will attack us. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families. And how does he do that? Imagine the sight. They would add swords, they would add spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and officials, And the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is the great and awesome 
who is great and awesome, and fight with, for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. See, this must have been a really scary thing. The message was coming. These fellows are going to surround you, they're going to come in, and they're going to kill you. Imagine that. What would we do? For example, if you get a message that's coming to us, somebody is going to come here and, and wipe us out. Oh, we panic, wouldn't we? You see, Nehemiah knew that. So he armed the people. He gave them the swords. He gave them everything they needed. But the people came on to work because if they had been fearful, nothing would have happened. You see, fear can cripple a person. Have you ever been fearful of something that you actually stood frozen in absolute fear? In his first inaugural address on March 4th, 1933, President Franklin Roosevelt said this to the nation. He said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Is fear itself. See, don't be afraid, Nehemiah said. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Have you? Do you remember the Lord? Hmm? He said, remember the Lord. Nehemiah proclaims this all-sufficient God, for he is great. And he's, imagine, friends, what if the nation was destroyed? And what would have happened to God's promises to Israel? What would have become his plan of his plan of redemption? What about Jesus coming out of Jerusalem? And then I like this this Nehemiah four fifteen. When our enemies heard what we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work, each to our own work. God had frustrated the plan. They returned to their work. They worked as teams. They worked together. So as we conclude this morning, 1 to 15, overcoming opposition is a real challenge. When opposition comes, be encouraged because opposition only rises up for those who are doing something. If you just keep the status quo, then there will be no opposition. (laughs) You can just keep everything going nice and easy and comfortable. Be all right. But because Nehemiah was a leader called by God, he takes on that responsibility and he goes on, even in spite of Satan's attacks upon himself. Nehemiah could have retaliated at his insults, at the insults of his opponents, but he did not. A very good principle of leadership here. A very good principle of leadership. If he did, then he would have lowered himself to the level of his critics. In Proverbs, we read this, Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. See, Nehemiah and the people overcame opposition by praying to the Lord. Nehemiah and the people overcame opposition by trusting the promises of God. Nehemiah and the people overcame opposition by getting on with the job, because this was a good work. And Nehemiah and the people overcame opposition by working hard. Nehemiah was not a lazy leader who sat around on an armchair and looked at everything and said, whoopee, you guys do the work, that's fine, I'll have a latte. No, he was out there working with the people. Nehemiah was not a lazy leader who loved his status. 
No, he worked hard together with the people. And this was a good work. What about you? What about us as a people here this morning? You see, the people had a mind to work, they had a heart to pray, and they had an eye to keep watch. And as this church here at St. Stephen, Surrey Hills, I want to encourage us to stay focused on building his church. It is a good work. We stay focused in serving Christ, serving men, women, boys and girls, and those who are lost. That's what we are here to do. You know, my heart broke the other day. I was in the city and I saw a young person. I was at actually General Assembly this last week. It's a long, long day. My grandma was there. I was coming back home and saw this young person sitting on the side of the street. You know, you walked up Flinders Street, you know, you see all kinds of people there. And I saw the lostness on this person's face. And I said to someone who was with me, I said, Man, we have been in that General Assembly talking about so much of things. This is the real world <laughs> out here. The world where people are lost. Anyway, you see what I'm saying? Do you have a passion for that? Do you have a heart for these kind of people? This morning, as I close, as I said earlier, Nehemiah points us to Christ. Remember someone else who was mocked and ridiculed and faced opposition. Remember the words of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah says this about this person. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. You see, Jesus, our Savior, faced the ultimate opposition at the cross. Did he not? The Son of God hung on the cross and he faced the pain of those paper bullets. He faced the pain of ridicule for no fault of his. He gave his life for our sins were laid on him. He was punished, suffered, died in our place. You see, when you face opposition for being a Christian in this world, remember Jesus. He came to give us life for us, so that in life and in death, we are always in his hands. If the Lord calls us home, we will be with God in heaven because of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Remember his love for you. And when you know him as your Lord and Savior, be assured that he is always with you. Do you know him this morning? Do you know this Jesus? Because if you know him, you will know this awesome God who stands with you and journeys with you every step of the way. No matter what opposition, no matter what trial comes our way, and some trials are hard. It brings tears to our eyes. But our God stands with us in his son, Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious people here. Every single person, Lord. You know our hearts. You know our thoughts. We are weak, and frail, fragile human beings. 
Help us, Lord, to stand strong in the Lord. This morning, I pray if there's anyone who does not know Christ, that today will be the beginning of a journey of faith. For those of us who know Jesus, Lord, we thank you that you took our place, ridiculed, mocked, and scorned, that we might live. Would you bless your church, dear Lord? It belongs to you. Forgive us for our sins. Have mercy upon us. And use us for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.